Well, good morning. It's good to be back for my annual visit at the beginning of the Law's vacation. It's good to see you all here Sunday morning together to be able to open up God's Word. What a privilege to be able to teach and hear what God has to say for us this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. That's page 311 in the Pew Bible in front of you if you don't have a Bible with you. I remember praying for an unsaved family member, praying, Lord, why don't you save them? Have you ever had a thought like that? Lord, why don't you, and then fill in the blank, why don't you heal my sickness? Why don't you give me that promotion? Why don't you save that family member? And go on and on and on. The different things we ask of God because we expect things of Him. How does the Lord work? What does He say? And how will He respond? Sometimes our personal expectations for how God works needs to be rearranged. What we expect of God and what He is actually like can be different. What are your expectations for God? And how do they differ from what God is really like? Well, this morning, we're going to endeavor to answer that question. How does the Lord work? And in our text today, we'll find four answers. Number one, God delivers. That's going to be verses 1 to 3. Number two, God heals. That's verses 4 to 8. Number three, God offends. That's going to be verses 9 to 14. Number four, God saves. That's verses 15 to 19. So number one, God delivers, verses 1 to 3. Number two, God heals. That's verses 4 to 8. Number three, God offends. That's verses 9 through 14. And number four, God saves. That's verses 15 to 19. Now, if you want to hear the whole sermon in just two sentences, here it is. For those of you who are going to fade a little bit later, or are going to struggle to make it through, here it is. In just two sentences, here's what we're going to try and do. God sovereignly delivers the most unlikely of people. A prideful Syrian warrior is healed and converted so that the Lord might be glorified. My prayer is that we'll all come to know how God sovereignly and lovingly works in our life for our good and His glory. And he does that through his son, Jesus Christ. So we're dropping in the middle of a book. I want to just give us a little bit of context. First and second Kings is about the kings of Israel and Judah. We see at the start of first Kings, the kingdom is under the reign of Solomon. That's first Kings one to 11. As one nation, they live under his reign, but then they split into two. And then generation after generation after generation, we see wicked kings, both in Israel and Judah, revolting against God. And as these evil, faithless kings turn away from the Lord, so also does the nation follow suit. Second Kings ends with the Lord's judgment for this evil. He sent both Israel and Judah into exile. So First and Second Kings teaches us about the failure of human leadership when it turns away from the Lord. No earthly king can replace the Lord. Entering into this mess, the Lord sends two prophets, Elijah and his successor, Elisha. They confront the monarchs 
and call God's people back to him. The prophets are God's messengers, bringing God's word to God's people. These men of faith stand in stark contrast with the the kings and with the nations, all of whom are faithless and turn away from the Lord. It's Israel's rejection and disobedience of God and his prophets that result in the nations actually being turned into those nations that fall into exile. So let's begin with point number one. God sovereignly delivers, and that's verses one to three. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria? He would cure him of his leprosy. Well, the story begins here in verse 1 with Naaman, who is a commander of the army of the king of Syria. And then the narrator pours out a list of accolades we see in the rest of verse 1. He was a great man with his master in high favor. Master here being the king of Syria, who thought highly of this military commander and showed great favor on him. Then it also describes her a man of valor, which the term used in the Old Testament often describes someone of great wealth or someone who's a courageous warrior. So he's prestigious. He's great. He's greatly favored. All of this plus much more belong to Naaman. Now, the reason for Naaman's success is also there in verse 1. Look, at, look down there. It says, because by, this is, by Naaman, the Lord had given great victory in Syria. Now, the word victory in Hebrew literally means deliverance or salvation. Naaman's military accomplishments came because the Lord had granted it. Not a single good thing came to Naaman or Syria apart from the Lord's sovereign hands. Though nations rage and foreign leaders mock God, hence Psalm 2, the Lord shows kindness to them all. But notice there, at the end of verse 1, it says, But he was a leper. After all the accolades and all the accomplishments, the descriptor lands like a thud. Wait a second. He was a leper. This great commander of the Syrian army was a leper. The narrator wants us to feel the dilemma. This great man had an incurable skin disease. You know, and like any great narrator of a story, they often offer the dilemma at the beginning of the story, which builds attention into the whole story. Because now you have to ask, well, what's going to happen? How is this going to get resolved? What's going to happen to this great warrior? And what's the Lord going to do? Sadly, the answer is going to be, can this man be healed? No. This man can't be healed by his own strength, which means he has to look outside of himself because he can't fix the problem on his own. 
Now this is probably not modern day leprosy, Hansen's disease. When Gehaziah, Naaman's servant, gets leprosy later in the chapter, which you can see the end of the chapter, verse 27, his skin is described as being whiter as snow. Well, modern day Hansen's disease doesn't have white lesions, but whatever it is, we know that Naaman has some kind of skin disease. It could be psoriasis or scabies or something else. Now look there, verse 2. Note the account of the nameless Israelite girl who was taken by the Syrians during the raid and brought to work as a servant of Naaman's wife. She was ripped from her homeland and lived in servitude to this powerful military family. And then verse 3, look there. Yet even in her tragic circumstances, the girl cared for the well-being of her master. She told her mistress, if Naaman were to go to the prophet in Israel, he would be healed. Naaman had no cure for his skin disease. When he heard this idea, he jumped on it. Wait, there's an answer for this incurable disease? There's something I can actually do about it? He was desperate for a cure, and this nameless servant in the story offers him a possibility that he had never heard before. Ironically, the real hero of this story is not a valiant military leader. It's this nameless servant girl taken into slavery who believed her sovereign God could work through the prophet in Israel. Naaman had great power and prestige, but she had what he needed most, an answer to the problem of his skin disease. Now, there are two deliverances in these first three verses. The military one, God delivers the foreign nations into Naaman's hands as he grants victory to Naaman's army. But there's a much more personal deliverance coming. God uses this personal tragedy of this nameless girl to sovereignly bring hope to a prideful pagan military commander. Now, isn't that how God often works? He uses the least likely, the common, the lowly, the fools of this world to shame the wise, the strong, and the powerful. To show the fact that he's in charge of the entire universe. Though Naaman led the Syrian army to conquer four nations, his own deliverance would come at the hands of a servant girl taken by his own army. The Lord often orchestrates events to bring unbelievers to saving faith. That's what we'll see later on in this chapter in verse 15, and to bring himself glory through it. God did this at great cost to the girl's life. It's a tragedy that she was ripped from her home, taken from her parents, and taken from the life that she knew. Just think about that. She was taken from everything that she had had and brought into slavery into this military family. But God uses the tragedy of this little believing girl to save the greatest military ruler of the land. The Lord put this little girl with faith in this pagan home, not just so that he might be healed, but so that one day he might believe. Have you ever looked at a tragedy and on its own terms thought, well, why, God? 
Why are you doing this? Why do we have to face this? Why are we going through this? Well, I have. I'm asked that question often. Why, God, why do we have to deal with this like this? Yet if we stood in glory, we'd be able to see the connection that, like this narrator offers us today, between tragedy, suffering, and God's eternal plans. We know that God works all things for the good of those who love Him. We know that from verses like Romans 8.28. But we don't always see what He's doing, and sometimes we do, but many times we don't. God is sovereign over every aspect of this world. He orchestrates whatever He needs to accomplish His own will. And I'm confident that one day when we stand in glory, we're going to look at everything that He did and say, Wow! You did that? Wow, really? Was that what you were really doing? And I didn't see any of it. I didn't anticipate where you were headed with that. I didn't know what the end of the story was. I didn't know how you were working this out. We'll look at the hard things we've faced, and we probably will not realize until we get to glory that God has been working for our good behind the scenes. Now kids, I'm, I'm thrilled to see so many kids in the service here with us today. Now you, you know that your parents do a lot for you. What you probably don't often realize is how much they're doing when you've gone to bed. You know, who pays the bills? How does the kitchen magically get clean the next, by the next morning? You know, who cleaned up the mess that was in the living room? Mom and Dad make all kinds of sacrifices for you, and sometimes you don't realize it until you get older. Like, for example, teenagers and adults. I remember years ago, with our first child, you, 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 some of you will relate to this as a parent, that moment in the middle of the night, when the child is crying and you get up out of your bed and you head into the nursery and the child has a dirty diaper and so you clean up that diaper, get the child clean, get him back to bed. And I remember after months of doing this, it occurred to me, did my mom do all this for me too? Wow. How much has she done? I just have never thanked her for all of that. Sometimes it takes being a parent yourself and going through all those same steps to realize everything your parents did that you never even noticed. So what did I do? The very next day, called my mom and said, did you do all that for me? She said, of course I did, because I loved you. Well, God works the same way, doesn't He? He does so much for our good and we don't even see it. While you're asleep at night, He's working for your good. There are so many things happening in the background that we don't even realize that God worked for our own sake. And He's doing that in this story. Some of the wonders of Scripture is that the narrators help us to even see the connections between things that we wouldn't see with our own eyes. And so they give us insight into these situations. Now, for those of you who can look back and say, well, God did this for me. I can see how He worked. God gave you eyes of faith to see the connections between those things. Well, praise God that you are able to see that or even know that. 
What a great thing to talk about even today at lunch. To recount the many ways you've seen God work in your life. The many ways He's helped you, especially through difficult seasons. Well, God sovereignly worked through these circumstances to bring about Naaman's deliverance using this nameless, believing Israelite girl. He shows that he's in charge of nations, military commanders, and every aspect of our life. And that brings us to point number two, God heals. Only God can do the impossible, which is resurrect and heal leprosy. And that's verses four to eight. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Well, only God can do the impossible, which is resurrect and heal leprosy. Look there, verse 4. Naaman goes to the king of Syria and tells him, what the Israelite girl said. And then verse 5, the king issues a diplomatic letter to the king of Israel. My presumption is that the, the king of Syria thinks that the prophet of Israel must answer to the king of Israel. So he goes straight to the top. He asks the king of Israel to take care of this matter. And there, verse 5, Naaman is loaded up with silver and gold and clothing by the Syrian king with greatness and goods and a diplomatic letter, Naaman is prepared to cut through the government red tape and buy a faith healing. Verse 6, he hands over the letter to the Israelite king and we see what it says. The Syrian king asks the Israelite king to make sure Naaman is healed of his leprosy. And then look there, verse 7, the Israelite king reads the letter and tears his clothes. He is fearful and overwhelmed. And you hear the first words out of his mouth. He says, Am I God? He's overwhelmed. Like, how could I do this? How could I do what you're asking of me? And he knows he's not God in two senses. The first one, only God can kill and resurrect. The king can't bring someone back to life after they die. No human can resurrect the dead. Forget about all those creepy zombie movies on TV. Nothing comes back to life apart from God's power. But the second sense you see there, only God can cure leprosy. The Israelite king is not a faith healer. 
Only the Lord can do the impossible and heal Naaman's leprosy. Oh, you see there, second half, verse 7. Unlike the believing servant girl, the king doesn't have faith. His fear of the situation quickly overtakes him. It's like a stark contrast between the two. Rather than reading this letter with eyes of faith, the king reads it as an act of hostility. He's thinking like a king. He thinks politically. He sees this as an attempt by Syria to pick a fight with him. Israel is asking the king to do the impossible for a key military leader. What an awkward political situation, he thinks. How could he ask this of me? Now, if President Biden sent a five-star general to the prime minister of Israel and asked him to heal the general of his skin disease, the prime minister of Israel would think, well, this is an unusual diplomatic request. I've not gotten this kind of thing before. Look at verse 8. Elijah hears that the king has torn his clothes over this international matter. So he takes initiative with the king. This faithless king doesn't seek out the prophet. So Elijah asked him, Why have you torn your clothes? That is, why are you getting so worked up over this? The man of God, the prophet, knows that God can heal and God can resurrect. And that God can use him, Elijah, to bring a miracle of healing. So he says, send him to me so that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So this fearful Israelite king reacts to a diplomatic request. He thinks politically, not with eyes of faith. And he knows he's not God, that he can't do the impossible. Rather than responding, oh no, what am I going to do? I can't do this. He should have responded like the faithful servant girl. I know God can do anything. I know he can heal Naaman. Now just take that contrast for a second. Who are you like? The faithful servant girl or the faithless Israelite king? In a difficult moment, do you have eyes of faith to see what God might do? Or do you forget God and get caught up with your own fear? And that brings us to point number three. God offends our pride and expectations for our good. That's verses 9 through 14. So Naaman came with horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Parfar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servant came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, 
according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Look there, verse 9. Naaman brings his entire entourage, horses and chariots, to Elijah's neighborhood. I want you to picture this. The neighbors are peering out the windows wondering, well, what's the great Syrian commander doing in the front lawn of Elijah? Why has he and his whole group parked in his driveway? What's going on here? Naaman now stands in front of Elijah's door. And look there, verse 10. Rather than Elijah coming to the door, he sends a messenger who declares, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean. And then verse 11, Naaman's reaction. He quickly becomes angry and he stomps off, saying, I thought that he would surely come out to me. Did you notice that? I thought he would surely come out to me. Note the emphasis on those last two words. Oh, how quickly our pride is offended. This no good prophet didn't even have the decency to come to the door to speak to me. That's what he's thinking. Have you ever reacted like Naaman? Has your pride ever been offended? If so, you think of yourself probably much more highly than you deserve. As Dale Ralph Davis reminds us, God's ways humble our pride. He may not make a fuss all over you. Naaman was a prestigious military leader, and he expected the prophet to cater to his greatness, but alas, Elisha did not. Listen to Naaman's entire response. Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. That's verse 11. Naaman came loaded up with his goods to buy a healing or at least to get a dazzling show with waving hands. That's what he was expecting of God. He expected God to deliver something more spectacular than meager instructions from the prophet's servant. You and I are not very different than Naaman, are we? We expect things from God, and when He doesn't deliver in a way that you expected, you're disappointed and at times angry with God. Why didn't you convert my son? Why didn't you take away my sickness? Why didn't you give me that promotion? Why didn't you give us the time off? Why is my parent failing right now? Why is my wife sick right now? Why can't we move from... You can go on and on and on with the questions that we ask of God because we have expectations of Him and we're disappointed and even angry that He has not fulfilled it. Check your pride. We're capable of turning God into a genie who must meet our demands. Pride ruins our relationship with the Lord. And yet humility, Philippians 2, Christ-like humility, paves the way for your growth and sanctification. Repent of the pride that demands that God acts like a genie in a bottle. That God satisfies the things that you expect of Him. That God does whatever you ask of Him. 
Let God be God and humble yourself before Him. Verse 12. As Naaman continues his rant, you see a bit of the Syrian nationalistic pride. Are the rivers in my country better than the rivers in Israel? Aren't they much better than them? Did I have to come all this way just to wash in this mangy Israelite river? Elisha treated Naaman as he deserved, not as a great military ruler, but as a leper. And Naaman didn't like it at all. As a leper, what Naaman needed was not just healing, but to be clean. Look at that in verses 10 to 14. The words washed and be clean are repeated four times to put emphasis on it. Naaman was prepared to pay for this great faith healing show with waving arms and great fanfare. But what he got was a simple cleansing ritual. That's not what he expected of the prophet, let alone of God. But that's what he got. A simple cleansing ritual. What do you expect from God? And are your expectations wrong? And is your pride getting in the way? This cleansing act in the Jordan, far from the prophet and anyone else, showed that it's the Lord God Almighty who would heal Naaman. It's God Himself who would take care of this and provide the miracle. No other person, no other thing in all the earth had the power to bring Naaman healing and cleanse him. But what this is not, uh, but this is not what Naaman expected, and pridefully what he did not want. Look at the end of verse 12. He says, it, he turned and went away in rage. This is what our pride often leads us to, doesn't it? Angry, disappointed, and frustrated. So he walked away in rage. But in verse 13, yet again, another nameless servant comes to the rescue. The servant chides Elisha. Uh, the servant chides Naaman, saying, this is a great idea that the prophet has given you. All Elijah said is wash and be clean. So why do you not do it? In other words, you've been looking for a solution for your skin disease. We've come all this way to Israel to find it. Elisha gave you a simple cleansing ritual. You can wash in the river seven times and be clean. Why don't you do it? Why wouldn't you do it? The nameless servant is lovingly coaxing his boss for his own good. And there, verse 14, Naaman listens to the servant. He goes and dips himself into the Jordan seven times. But note the next phrase in the text, according to the word of the man of God. Now, it's interesting. If you look through 1 and 2 Kings, you'll see a phrase like this or similar phrases throughout the two books. According to the word of God or according to the word of the man of God. The emphasis is on obedience to God's word. God gives us his word for our good and we pridefully choose to do other things, to go our own way, to choose things the way we want to do things. God knows what's best for you and there should never be any doubt. Are you obeying God's word or are you slugging through this life on your own? Now, I want you to imagine 
my youngest son standing on the edge of a cliff, facing towards the edge of the cliff. And in a distance I see him, and I say to him, Stop! Come back to me! Now you're wondering what happens, don't you? If he doesn't obey, if he doesn't listen to me, his life is in peril. But if he obeys, if he turns around, if he comes back to me, he will be safe. What's the same thing with God's Word? If we run in our own direction, if we don't care to obey, our life is in danger. But when we turn to God's Word, when we obey what it says, we find safety and refuge because that's what God provides for us. Especially when we live in faith and follow His Word in obedience. Well, God offends the pride and upends the expectations of this great military leader to humble him for his good. So also he does this for us. And that brings us to point number four, God saves. That's verses 15 to 19. And then he returned to the man of God and all his company, and he came and he stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. Well, I don't know if you've ever looked at a children's Bible. This chapter is often in the Old Testament section. But if you've ever read those stories, you notice the story stopped where we just stopped, right at verse 14. It doesn't add in what I think is the best part of the story, verses 15 to 19. And why is this the best part of the story? Because Naaman, this great pagan military ruler, is converted. Verse 15, he returns to Elijah with his entire entourage and he stands before the prophet and he declares in his allegiance to God his allegiance is to God alone there is no god in all the earth but in Israel now if you're not a follower of Christ welcome i'm thrilled that you're here today with us that you've chosen to come and be with God's people on Sunday morning now you may not realize it but the character you're most associated with in this story is Naaman. Naaman is not a follower of Christ. He's not a follower of God. And he's the one who's entering into this story with allegiance to other things. And so you should ask yourself, what is your allegiance to today? Often our allegiance is to ourselves or to our work or to something else other than God. And what you see in this story is that 
Naaman's entire life is turned around. Now, he comes in looking for cleansing. He looking for relief. And yet, what do we find? Like Naaman, you're probably struggling with pride. You probably have your own difficulties and suffering. But your deepest need is not your relief from your troubles, but for forgiveness. You and I both are sinners, which means we rebelled against God. And our need is for God to cleanse us from our sin so that we can be forgiven and come to know Him. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's the hope we all have. That God could actually cleanse us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus did for us. In dying on a cross for our sins, He offers us cleansing and forgiveness through His work on the cross. So I wonder, whoever you are, if that, that is what you didn't expect from today, that's what God's Word offers for you today. That you can be cleansed and forgiven because God has done that through His Son. And what's asked of you is to repent of your sins and to trust in Him. What better day than today than to come to know God through His Son, Jesus Christ. There's no better day than today for you to come to know Jesus. So consider that for yourself. If you've never repented of your sins, let me invite you to consider doing that today. Now to my fellow believers, I want to ask you, who is the unlikely convert in your life? Who is it that you've given up on? Who is it that you think, I don't think it's possible, humanly speaking. And yet you come to understand, it, it, it may be in your mind, humanly speaking, impossible, but it is not impossible with God. Verse 15, Naaman offers Elijah a present. And look at what Elijah does in verse 16. He refuses the present to show that just what happened was not a prosperity gospel kind of healing. He didn't want Naaman to think that this is a prosperity gospel, Benny Hinn style faith healing show. There was no payment afforded for this kind of healing. Rather, what we see is that Elijah adamantly refuses any kind of payment. And why is that? Because I think he wants Naaman to know that God is a God of grace. That this healing was undeserved. And yet this is how Elijah's God works. He shows favor to those who do not deserve it. He's a God of grace to those who do not deserve it. And so Naaman today experienced that. He experienced the grace of God in his own life. Now verse 17, look, Naaman asks Elisha if he can bring back two mules of dirt so is, to is, from Israel so he can establish his own place of worship in Syria. Now what you should not think of this is a sack of dirt or a, a piece of a stone wall as a token from a trip to Israel. This is not some tourist token. In fact, what it is, is Naaman is going back into a wicked nation that worships foreign gods. And he wants to establish his own outpost of worship to the God of Israel. He's heading into a hostile land and he wants to be able to be faithful to the God of Israel as he heads back into the land that he is a leader in. And you know, what, what it is, is him saying, I won't offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to these false gods. 
From now on, I will only worship the Lord God of Israel. He's showing what his allegiance is now. That's what Naaman's saying. And that should be our declaration too. In a very hostile society that is very anti-Christian right now, in a society that is very much against what you believe, your allegiance should be, I will be faithful to the Lord God, to Jesus Christ His Son, no matter what I face. And then look there in verse 18. Naaman asks for Elisha's pardon. A part of his job is accompanying the king into the house of Ramon, who is Syrian's version of a false god, to help the king. Now the king leans on Naaman as he bows, and so also Naaman bows with the king. Now you might think, but this guy just pledges allegiance to the Israel God. So what's he doing? What, what, what is this? What's going on here? Well, let me give you just three quick thoughts of what I think is happening here. Number one, Naaman's sensitivity to this dilemma and his request for a pardon gives us further, further evidence of his conversion. If he wasn't a Christian, he wouldn't care. It just wouldn't matter to him. If he wasn't converted, he wouldn't care, but he does care. So he asks Elijah to forgive him. Second thing, verse 16 and 17, he just pledged his exclusive allegiance to the Lord God of Israel. So he's saying, I think, that anything that goes on in the house of Ramon essentially is meaningless to him. And then thirdly, what I think is going on is a newfound humility. Interesting, if you look at verses 15 to 18, what you see is Naaman refers to himself five times as a servant. Fascinating. He now calls himself a servant. The prideful military ruler has been humbled by God. When you align your life with God, it should prick your pride and humble you. Pride should never persist in the presence of a holy God. If you're a believer, let this be a warning to you. If you're struggling with your pride, let me invite you to repent of that pride and turn back to the Lord today. Verse 19, Naaman's request is granted and Elijah pardons Naaman. Well, we should conclude. Naaman sought a healing for his skin disease and he got it. But the greatest change was not an external cleansing, but it was the transformation of his heart. He was not only healed, but his heart was changed and he found forgiveness. This prideful, famous warrior became a humble, God-fearing servant. So Joel chapter 2, verse 13, the prophet tells us to rend, that is, give over our hearts and not just our garments. Now take a moment and think about it. Who are you like in this story? Are you like the believing servant girl or the panicking Israelite king? Or are you like the prideful military commander or the new convert who is willing to worship the Lord regardless of the difficult circumstances. Jesus died for sinners like you and me. The gospel changes us from inside out and captures our heart. When the Lord comes and transforms us, He turns us upside down, transforming our entire lives. 
Will you be like Naaman and commit your life to the Lord today? Let's pray together.